Hey everyone, this is Connor. Before we get started, I just want to encourage you to check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. If you become a patron, you'll get access to multiple exclusive episodes every month. And you can also join our patrons-only Discord chat, where Pete and I talk informally with the Podside Picnic community. So if you like the show, go ahead and check us out at patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. Thanks. Welcome back to Podside, everyone. Uh, this is, of course, Carlo. Uh, we are going. We are joined today. I mean, obviously, my co-host uh, Kurt. Kurt the joyful. The man. <laughs> there you go. Um, Kurt has been um, sampling already. Been sampling uh, heavily from the 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 fruit of honey, not uh, right. of fermented wine nor wheat. And uh, with us today, uh, straight from our Discord to you, everyone. Uh, hello, Josh. Uh, you are well known in our Discord as Mad Hematics. Is that correct? Yes. Terrible Islamic pun. Could you could you break it down for me? Because <laughs> I'm actually, not I'm not aware actually, of that. It's actually relevant to the to the movie in the book. Uh, it's a reference to the four schools of thought in uh, Sunni Islam. They have slightly different religious rulings, and the entire thing about the honey beer uh, is two two of those. Uh, schools saying that it's absolutely not okay and one of them being weird so interesting <laughs> interesting well they sound like uh like the good time party guys of islam so i'm just gonna go they, on with that assumption they don't get to eat shrimp so uh. i mean it's a trade-off mm. oh, man. <laughs> mm. well well, well, well. All right. So uh, today we're going to be discussing uh, none other than we're going to do like a little dual uh, dual duty, right? Uh, we're going to discuss uh, the 13th Warrior, uh, which, uh, uh, you know, Kurt has uh, been lobbying and and rather successfully so to for, for us to uh, talk about. I, you know, revisit and uh, and of course, we're going to also talk a little bit about the Crichton novel that it's based off of very rather loosely, right? Or not not so loosely, I think but it's pretty close, honestly. It's pretty I close. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I was reading it while it was uh, while I was watching the movie, and so much of it is just like almost word for word the same. There, yeah, um, especially um, what's the guy's name? Uh, Hege, I, I think the like his his like main friend among among the Norsemen, um, most of his dialogue comes verbatim uh, from the book. There's there's like a few things that that are, like a lot of the one liners don't like the the whole like we'll grow stronger and like calling him little brother that that's not from the book. But like a lot of the other stuff is I, I did love that uh, they the, the as soon as the the Vikings met him, uh, they did the very American thing. It was like Evan. Oh, your name's Evan? Yeah, ah, his name's Evan. Okay. Okay, hey, Evan. I, I had sympathy for that when I was a kid. I thought the same thing. I was like, there's some guy out there named Ibn writing just a ton of books. Every book has citations by Ibn. <laughs> he's, he's almost as prolific as Anonymous. Yeah, Jesus. <laughs> so we should so, probably say why um, wh wh why we got Josh uh, on on the, the, the episode in, in particular which was like, uh, you know, the, 
part of the conceit of the book and and the movie is is that you have basically like a i guess he's like a 10th century uh persian poet um who who travels north and it talks extensively about about you know islam which is a topic that nobody you know none of us on the podcast knows a whole lot about like this was probably some of the earliest stuff that i learned about about islam and i i put learn in in huge uh, quotation marks there because I have no idea if any of it is remotely accurate. Like, <laughs> so yeah. One, yeah. one of the funniest parts of the book to me is Crichton avoids like getting into the mess of being right or wrong about Islam a lot just by having uh, Ibn Fadlan go like, Oh, this is just like an Islam where we, well, you already know. I don't have to repeat it. <laughs> 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 if you know, you know, um, well, and, and let's, um, I think, uh, uh, earlier I said, uh, that it was a loose adaptation. What I meant is, um, and, and I misspoke, uh, what I meant is that it's a sort of like a loose adaptation of Beowulf. Um, oh yeah. And so, uh, but, but it's, it's really, um, one of the things that's very charming about getting into the book and thank you, Kurt, for, for like you know, sort of like prodding, prodding me to, to, you know, try to read eaters of the dead, which is a rather short book. Um, but it's, it's, it's so, um, it's so full of exactly the fussiness. It's so that fun. You'd expect, yeah. You'd expect from like somebody that's translating like a scholarly translator who's found this document. And, and the, the, the really sort of fun, clever thing about this is that Crichton initially, uh, bases part of the, the beginning of the book on, um, it, it was it actually, uh, Ibn Fadlan. Uh, was yes. the the chronicle? Yeah, he's a real so, guy. He was a real traveler. Um, and he right, actually right. did record, um, the the recollection of the Viking funeral where they first um mm-hmm. like encounter the Norsemen. That that that's an actual episode in uh even Fadlan's um account. But but yeah, but in the actual account, I think he he obviously he he doesn't go with the Norsemen <laughs> and wind up writing well, he's, Beowulf. Yeah, like but. like there, I believe I believe, and and I might be uh, slightly off here because I'm going off memory, but I believe that he was uh, on the shores. I want to say I, I don't remember if it's the Black Sea or the Caspian Sea, one of those two, and they may be wildly different. Uh, I'm not even going to try to think about the geography, but, but it was a trading outpost and it just so happened that he, he managed to see that and was like, like you said, one of the first chroniclers of sort of like what we'd uh, slowly start to think of uh Viking custom. Right. Um, and it's, it, it, I, I forget if it's in the book that he talks about uh, the the idea that the at the time, like this is like what the eleventh or, or yeah, like the eleventh century uh, when that event is being chronicled. At the time, there was this idea that the uh, Vikings just did not have any culture or had not really like they they didn't have like a real society. They're just barbarians. Uh, but but anyway, th- that I think uh, we're getting ahead of ourselves here, or, or at least I am. Um, let's talk a little bit about uh, the movie. So uh, before we start with that, I, I want to say you mentioned Beowulf, and it's interesting because yeah, obviously this is like a very very loose adaptation of, of Beowulf. The the origin of why Crichton wrote this novel is he attended a lecture on to bring up some some 
beloved Twitter discourse, uh, boring classics. And part of the, like his friend was delivering the lecture of complaining about all these classics that you have to read are, are very boring. And he complained that Beowulf is a boring story and that nobody should have to read it a- anymore. And Crichton replies, actually, I think Beowulf kicks ass. So he wound up making a bet with his friend that Beowulf represented in a different context would actually be like a ripping good adventure yarn. And so that, that was the genesis, um, of eaters of the dead was basically let's see if we can make like a like like a fun like pulp adventure version of beowulf and i i think that's exactly what the book winds up being we we can talk we can talk about the, the books specifically but they're they're both fun he succeeded he definitely won that bet yeah it's like yeah. it's it's funny like like it, it almost i i think i think you know to transition back into the movie this almost feels like a like a lost third conan film at times. it really like, does it, it reminded me of lady hawk sometimes like yeah. the way the way they yeah. just the music the way the costumes work where they're just like throwing the random armor on these guys it looks like they're from like five different movies uh, the music, like when he goes into the throne room, it's almost oh. like when they go up to the emperor in Star Wars or something. Yeah, dun just, dun 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 dun. It's got it's this fucking great. It's a great great uh, Jerry Goldsmith uh, score. Kicks ass. Well, so so uh, let let's uh, because I do think that it, it's sort of it, it's a funny detail that all of them have like these like the 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 Vikings that um, <laughs> that uh, that Antonio Banderas's character uh, Ibn Fadlan. Uh, uh, ends up uh being with uh, you know basically uh, their their armor is all very piecemeal right and it's i guess it's supposed to be like a like a, a costuming um sort of uh storytelling where it just shows that they've been lots of different places and they've decided that they're going to just like like uh, the the guy that has like a conquistador breastplate <laughs> Yeah, it's 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 like an episode of Star Trek where they just raid the neighboring sets for for cosmetics. Hell yeah. (laughs) Nothing wrong with that. Uh, I mean, I think it works, honestly, but it is it is very subtle because like I think, uh, Kurt, you had mentioned the the guy that that just rides into battle wearing like the, the gladiator helmet, the one that has like the caged, uh, yeah. Face plate or whatever. Yeah. It's, it's like, it's like the helmet of the guy open. who has the net and the spear. I, I think I forget the mm-hmm. name of that particular type of gladiator, but yeah. And he's just riding around with like a, like a, like a 2000 year old helmet on <laughs> where we're supposed to believe the dude who's wearing like a doublet. Yeah. <laughs> And yeah, it's, it, it, it is, yeah, it's, it's very much not like a, like a historically accurate, uh, movie. Um, and, and like, I, I think, you know, nor, nor is the manuscript, or, no, the manuscript, <laughs> nor is the novel, but I, I mean, like, like, you know, in both cases, I, I think that's how, that's the conceit of the movie and it's also part of the fun. So like when I read, a, I read a bunch of reviews of this and there's a bunch where people like nitpick the various historical aspects no. of it and they they all conclude by saying that said it kicks ass <laughs> it's it it gives it the feeling it feels like that era of like fantasy movies it feels like an yeah. early lord of the rings almost mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah or like a late like like a late entry to like 80s fantasy movies yeah like this could have been like a like like a like a film in like 1985. Uh, if it, the, if it had the some book is from, sense. from 75, by the way. What's that? If it had some sense. 
If it had some sense, yes. <laughs> well, if it had some sense, it would totally be Lady Hawk. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um, but yeah. Uh, so um, do do yeah. we want to talk a little bit about um, I because there is a, a sort of almost an extended part in the movie that it's before we actually get yeah. to the main meat, right? Yeah, let's and let's begin at the beginning with with uh, esteemed actor Omar Sharif. <laughs> I, was, I was, so was so glad. I was so he, glad he was in that. <laughs> he he was apparently so insulted by the final project that it wound up uh, he he wound up like retiring from acting because of this movie. <laughs> Damn. That's too bad. <laughs> he does I a love, great job. I, I mean, I it, love it, Omar Sharif. I really he, do. He's he, great. He He's the most realistic feeling Arab character in the movie. <laughs> Interesting. Why do you say that particularly? I, I mean, is, is it because it's, he's 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 not Spanish? <laughs> no, it's it's the the way he talks, the the facial hair. Like he feels like he could belong to my wife's family. Basically, he <laughs> feels like some of the people I meet in coffee shops who are like, yeah, the the white Amriki guy, uh, but they don't know I'm listening in Arabic. <laughs> I, I i was i loved his character and the, the looks on his face when he's translating beautiful <laughs> melchizedek is his name or, or melchizedek yes. yeah so uh and and in the movie it's it's weird because um the, the book dispenses with this uh conceit uh because uh melchizedek is there to translate and he just so happens to have one of the uh like he knows one of the languages that the vikings also seem to know which is greek um <laughs> And he serves as like a go-between. Um, I think, uh, I mean, uh, it, it's not a bad um, alteration because in the book, basically, uh, Faldon is just like very much able to understand the Vikings from the get-go. He he just uh, talks to one guy. Uh, he talks yeah. to him in Latin. Yeah. So yeah, one of the Vikings uh, Her- is... Herger, yeah, who's kind of like like the, like his, his, his like his like buddy. Uh, he's oh, he's by... By by far the best developed, and yeah, he's yeah he he talks with him, but um a, a lot of the book he's just kind of like in his own head, and he's mm-hmm. like they're off talking to themselves, and then and then he kind of relies on his Viking buddy to come back and be like, oh, we just had a conversation about this, and what what, what is funny in the book that does I think come through in the movie is is that uh Herga Herga the joyous um is like constantly kind of annoyed at like ha- having to translate. For this, this like weird foreigner. And so he's frequently just like, shut up, shut up. Stop asking me questions. <laughs> <laughs> That's one question too many. I'm not. No, the, no. Just go, I, go back over there. This is skipping ahead a bit, but I really wish they had kept the, the buddy cop fight scene with Herger and Ibn Fadlan. Oh, at the end? Yeah. Yes. Oh. That kicked ass. Yeah. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it, 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 it is funny how like, so so like at the beginning of the movie, you know, to, to bring us back to, to, to the beginning um, we're, we're meant to understand that Ibn Fadlan is kind of this, this like very cultured kind of like fussy aristocrat, you know, he's, he lives like a life of luxury and in, in uh, Baghdad. Um, and then he, he pisses off, um, someone who has the ear of, uh, I guess it would be the, the Caliph, I suppose mm-hmm. at the time. Yeah. Um, and, and basically to, to get Ibn Fadlan out of this guy's hair, um, he he has him assigned as the diplomat to the people of of the north, and is basically like 
get the fuck out of here. <laughs> You're not welcome in Baghdad. Go be a diplomat. Um, and, and a lot of this, the, the charm of, of both narratives is his kind of gradual transition from this guy who's like, ah, the Vikings are so gross to like, you know, at the end in the book, he's, he's willing to stand up and like defend, uh, Bulawif's honor. Or at the end, he's he's like you know a, a full blown action swordsman guy um, in the movie. Uh, you know his his like transition from this kind of like very I, I would say perhaps somewhat uh, somewhat racially problematic depiction of <laughs> of like like you know wealthy aristocracy to you know a a like a real man. Like he even says, I think at the end of the movie, like thank you for giving me the opportunity to become a real man, which is like, well, it is what it is, but it is and a lot the, of the charm uh, of the narrative. And the movie way less explicit in the intro. The book is so horny in the first chapter. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. There's oh, there's a whole like it was like a really funny story where like he's he like there's this rich guy who has a very beautiful wife who no one is ever allowed to see and um he he arrives early to deliver a message and is basically told to like sit and wait and the guy's wife comes in and like fucks him basically basically yeah she drags she drags him off yeah yeah, like she drags him off to her quarters, and you know, by the time, by the yeah, you know, this is we we've we we all know how this uh, scenario ends. You know, by the time he's finished, uh, you know, the husband's back home. So, I, I also wondered because of the uh, the way that it's presented, if that wasn't sort of like a it, that the the caliph was using Fadlan to basically like visit some sort of dishonor on on the on the dude or whatever who knows i don't know it it felt like a trap in any way yeah and and so the movie picks up pretty much with just like like a very short like you know <laughs> a little scene where he he walks by and this lady's kind of like making eyes at him and then it's like get the fuck out of baghdad um and then uh he travels with with, with his good buddy Melchizedek. they get uh they get attacked by tartars I think um, very briefly, and then they they run down to take refuge by a river, and there they stumble upon the Northmen's camp, um, and they bear witness to a Viking funeral, and that's where Ifadlan meets um, his his new his new buddies in a very fun sequence. I loved all the sequences in, in like the Viking camp, and they they do a good job of like characterization with like you were mentioning Carla that like. It's basically just Omar Sharif translating everything <laughs> and everyone else is talking in, I think, Dutch or maybe Norwegian. Um, I guess it's it's probably Swedish or uh, Norwegian. Um, and it, it's, they're, they're just kind of like talking in, you know, none of it is subtitled. And you're just meant to like see it playing out. And it's it's very fun. It has like a very nice, again, like, like, a, like a Robert E. Howard kind of like Conan, like in a scary tavern sort of vibe to it. Yeah, it it does feel right. Like, um, it 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 manages to thread the needle between: are these guys in trouble, or is this just a lot of fun happening around them? You know, and and it could be either way. But also, like, the, they have like a couple instances where a fight breaks out, and it's like the 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 person gets punched and almost rolls into someone, you know, like uh, Fadlan's lap or something. You know, it's just very interesting the way that it's uh, sort of presented. Like you said, Kurt, it's I feel like it's very dynamic, and it's even though you don't know what people are saying or what the dialogue is, apart from whatever is being translated, um, 
it's all very interesting. It captures your in, you know, it captures the eye. I was I was interested in the uh, the funeral scene. So when they're when they're saying the prayer, they're picking up the girl every time she says it. That actually comes from the account. I was wondering because oh, cool. that was a little weird. And I looked it up, and it turns out they do have uh, in the actual Ibn Fadlan account, they do have him or the guys picking up the slave girl three times uh, to say the thing. And it is cool um, how like how they do depict that, and they are very explicit. Like, oh yeah, the, you know she's she's going to die with you know the old dead <laughs> king. Um, the the book is much more explicit and describes in much mm-hmm. greater detail, like how she's strangled and she's stabbed yep. through the like through the heart. And is is that from the account? Do, do you know, or yes, is that it, is that Crichton embellishing it? No, that's from the account, like uh, where they put the noose on her and have the oh, two metal. guys. Yeah, so like. That that part of the movie and the book, they're they're pretty close, closer than a true crime movie would be. <laughs> oh wow! <laughs> and and the, the the book in particular does something really interesting with that that um, the movie doesn't do. Which you know this probably would have made it you know, a hard R <laughs> rated <laughs> movie. Um, but at, at the end, they do this again with one of the slave women um, for uh, Buluif, and this time. Uh, Fadlan participates and like helps like strangle the girl. Um, oh, and it's, it's really it, used in the book to to emphasize like the extent to which he's like gone native, so to speak. It's it's even worse than that because in the book, the uh, the slave girl goes around and actually like has intercourse with all of the king's warriors. Oh yeah. And at, the, mm-hmm. at the end, he also Fadlan also has sex with the slave girl as well. That's right. Yeah. Yep. All all his yep. I, I, I I love all his various euphemisms um I, for sex I, in the uh <laughs> in the book. When when I was reading this, I was keeping a list. I was like, this dude, I'm I'm judging his Islam. He is sinning constantly. <laughs> he is uh, during the movie, like at the end, they finally at the end he goes into into the prayer. I was like, oh man, he's messing up every step, every step. <laughs> this Would is this is not that- mi- this is not go midnight ahead, ahead. mass. <laughs> so, so, so actually that, that, that was a question I, I had because the book has a lot more detail about Islam uh, than the movie, but I, I'm curious if it's, you know, correct at all. Like, like is, is the book closer to an accurate depiction that, than the movie, or is it even further off due to like erroneous detail? Oh God. So it's like, it, it kind of kind of reminded me like before I became a Muslim and went to the Middle East, I was in this like real hippie church, uh, charismatic, uh, lots of uh, almost everyone there was former drug user. And uh, so we had a lot of fun stories. So the pastor would get up and he would tell like a funny story. And I later found out all of the stories were Mullah Nasruddin stories just changed to be Christian. Uh, and that's. <laughs> That's what a lot of the Islamic stuff in the book is like. Like, it's stuff that culturally you would see in, like, American Christianity, like, you know, the dirty story, but mm-hmm. reworked to to sound like it's in an Islamic context. Uh, like I said, in the book, he avoids a lot of it. Like, whenever there's the opportunity to go into Islamic stuff, he's like, oh, we already know this stuff. We don't got to talk about this. Or, or someone will say, like, I don't want to hear it. Don't worry about it. <laughs> he 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 tells a couple stories that I I looked up while I was reading it that do actually seem to to be like well known 
like the, stories from that area at, at that time. There's the part about um the 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 guys like like old shoes, the slippers, um, yeah, the slippers, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that that was. I mean, I, I do I do enjoy me a very good yarn <laughs> about <laughs> like accursed items. <laughs> like the the funny thing is, right before he gets to that story, he says like, "Oh, I'm not going to tell you the story because we all know it." And then Crichton tells the story anyways, and it's like two pages. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's well, I mean, that, that's, <laughs> I, I feel like that's that's like the scholar that's supposedly, quote, translating, yeah. jumping in and going like, yeah, he see, he messed up. We're going to tell you what the story is to give you the context. Because, like, I think that it's important uh, because he tells the story and uh, people think like he thinks it's funny. But when uh, when he tells it to the to the Viking crew, they get like disturbed by it. And <laughs> and rightly so, because it's like, yeah, this is <laughs> this is not a, a funny story in in like a ha ha. It's so, so great. So many jokes sort of way. Yeah, there is a lot of stuff in both the book and the movie where like they get a lot of kind of like fish out of water uh, comedy out of like the, the Vikings want Yibfalan to tell a story or to sing a song and they like sing something about greatness. So he's like, okay, well I'll, you know, I'll, I'll recite the, um, I'm sorry, what's it called? The, uh, I have one God and Muhammad is his prophet. Oh, I, I forget. The Shahada. Sorry. Yeah. Thank, thank you. Yes, yes. So, so like he starts like reciting the Shahada and gets interrupted like by a fight, and then afterwards, uh, they're they're like, "No, this isn't what we want. <laughs> we want to like, like t- tell us something fun." <laughs> one one of the funny things when I was getting ready for the show and like watching the movie and reading the book, I ended up accidentally getting into slightly related nonfiction that just oh, it was awesome. I, when I went to go get the the digital version of the book. I accidentally got another book called Eaters of the Dead, which oh, yeah. is just a book about cannibalism and folklore that oh, specifically talks about. Yeah, it specifically talks about Grindel and like references this movie huh. and ogres. And uh, that was fun. And then when I was looking up the alcohol stuff, I found this paper uh, about let's see, what's it called? It is called Contesting Intoxication, Early Juristic Debates Over the Lawfulness of Alcoholic Beverages by Najam Hader. <laughs> and uh, it is an entire paper about the juristic framework of this time, specifically about the issue of like, does honeymead count as haram uh, based on different schools of thought? And they go into three of them, the Maliki, Shafi, and the Hanafi. Uh and the Hanafi were like the legal school of the Abbasids. And uh, the all three of those are kind of more liberal uh, than the Hanbali school, which is really popular in Saudi Arabia. Mm-hmm. So it was really hilarious that like Maliki and Shafi, they're pretty loose, loosey-goosey. Uh, my wife's family is Shafi. And they were like, no, getting drunk is what makes it haram. The Hanafi ah, were okay. like, yeah, the Hanafi were like, no, you got to be literal. So... Uh, only the stuff in the list is haram. And if honeymead is not listed, it's not haram. Uh, obviously that didn't stick around, but apparently it was accurate for the time. Interesting. So, so it's so, so just, just get a buzz. Don't get drunk. Yeah. I, it's like, I tell my students, like I always tell my students at school, uh, cause their parents won't let them have a dog. I'm like, just switch to the Maliki. Then you can have a dog. They're the liberal. Ones. <laughs> <laughs> it's, 
Oh, I see. You're indoctrinating the children over there. I see. There, mm. But but they still have to wash <laughs> their hands seven times. No, that's oh, there you that's go. part of, that's part of the fun of those schools is that like their reasoning that like they all agree that they're all legit, but their reasoning gets real different. So like the dog thing comes down to like there's a pro there's a ruling that if a dog licks you, you have to wash your hands seven times. And the debate comes down to most of the schools will say, oh, well, that means dogs are not just like the dogs are unclean. Uh, but the Malikis say, whoa, 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 that's not what it says. It just says you have to wash your hands seven times. It doesn't say it's because it's not just you can't infer that. So, like, <laughs> they get an exception. <laughs> but, yeah, so I like this was part of the fun, the way the book was written and like the way the movie took the accounts. It really does. If you like look into it, you can find a lot of great like historical stuff related. That's very interesting. And I, I, I think that that's like a very Crichton thing um, because like he doesn't always get he doesn't always get everything exactly correct, and he fudges stuff pretty freely. But oh, yeah. he really likes, I, I think, as an as an author and apparently as, as a stealth director, which which we can talk about. <laughs> but, um, but but he uh, he he really likes at least basing things on like the aesthetics of you know actual historical or scientific research, even though he'll be he'll, he'll freely be like. Yeah, so I changed this. Like, there's even like there's an afterword at the end of the book where he's like, "I started out this by trying to base everything on research, and at a certain point, I started adding stuff. And now you should pretty much take everything in the book as fiction, even though probably half of it is or was correct at the time I, I wrote it. But like, I I just don't remember and don't frankly don't care anymore." Which I, 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 I think is kind of like the right way to approach it as an author of fiction. Yeah. I thought you were referring to the other afterward, uh, the fictional afterward. Oh, I love that. Yes. Oh, my God. That was <laughs> that was hilarious. Yeah. Where it's like, oh, I'm not sure if these guys are Neanderthals or not. Maybe they are. Of course, the movie does play <laughs> around with that because of like you mentioned the the separate art direction there. Yeah. Um, so I, I guess I, I guess we kind of reach in the movie the end of the historical sections after this really great scene where you know it's all the viking like they this this messenger arrives uh much i i it basically starts trans transitioning into the beowulf narrative and this this messenger arrives saying uh Bulawif, you know we need you to come up and bring some warriors this great terror has befallen our kingdom please come help um, and there's this great sequence uh, with uh, the, basically their their like wise woman um, calling out you know proclamations like we need there there must be thirteen warriors the number of of moons in the year and one by one all the Vikings are standing up going I will be the Ostman and I will be the Ottoman and so on um, and then it, it gets to the end and she says some stuff that you don't know what she said and <laughs> isn't translated and everyone in the room stops and looks at Antonio Banderas um, and is just looking at him and he's like what 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 did I do why is everybody looking at me <laughs> <laughs> and of course it's it's because she's she's declared that you know the the final warrior must not be somebody who is known to them and cannot be a Northman. And, you know, it's basically like it's him and Omar Sharif, who's like in his 70s when this is made. So, I, so they're, they're looking at I, the young guy. I was rooting for Omar Sharif, to be honest. But <laughs> that would be a great movie, honestly. Well, I mean, we, we don't we don't know if Omar, if Omar Sharif just heard it was like, oh, it, it could be me. 
Oh, it's, they're asking for use. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, they they specifically said they need someone named Ahmad Ibn Very specific prophecy. Actually. He's, he's very, busy. He's he's busy. He's got to record all those uh, teaching bridge audio clips. <laughs> <laughs> so uh yeah and then so they 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 uh I, I one of the things that i i love is the sort of like the uh, how would i describe this it's sort of like very casual antagonism that they they visit upon fadlan <laughs> like i i i made mention that you know he's like you know so you know he's asking you what your name is and you know he starts rolling through his entire you know his entire name which i forget is uh, ahmed even fadlan even and i forget this, there's like three different uh uh sort of like family names after that and uh and he's like oh evan okay yeah. <laughs> hey evan <laughs> i what's I up love, i love the name thing when i had my kid they gave me the choice in the court to do it either american style or arab style names since i'm muslim right and i'm in the court uh listed the sharia court and so I tried to get my wife to agree to use the Arab style names, but she was like, then his name would be Ilyas Joshua Sherman Herbert. And uh, no, not allowed. <laughs> she was, that was, uh, it was such a great scene. And they, they go to the island and, I'm getting ahead. Sorry. Cut this part later. No, 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 no. Feel, feel no. free. I, the, the, the only thing there, well, so there's only two things that I want to add yeah. before throwing back to you. Cause yeah, I, I mean, that is the, the, the next big thing. Um, but there's this great scene where one of like the biggest Viking, uh, is go, goes over to, um, Ifadlan's horse and goes ruff, 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 and, and, uh, <laughs> I love that. and his friend is like he's saying that your horse is like a dog but then this huge viking is kind of like patting his horse on the head like like you know like good dog. like there's, <laughs> this is great like antagonistic affection that the vikings have yeah and it's 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 well, perfectly they, captured from from the book too where it's like over and over emphasized like they're they're assholes on the one hand but they're constantly cheerful all the time no matter what uh, is going on the the visuals on the part when he tries to prove them wrong by jumping over everything. Oh, the that part was not he, great. <laughs> oh God. It was the special effects were so bad in that. It was awesome. It was, it was so cheesy. Yeah. That was like, um, that was like Han Solo walking over Jabba's tail where he just like floats up in the air and, and like the special editions <laughs> level, which is funny because later on they actually do have, you know, like a guy like jumping over, um like fences on a horse and stuff so like i wonder if if they added that afterward or they just wanted the shot to look different or or what because like Anto cl clearly they had horses that could jump over things. maybe antonio banderas is just scared of horses that's true that's true uh, oh yeah uh, there's also the uh the great scene before they uh, they actually embark on the sea voyage part of it which is great um the, oh, the, the scene that i know the that translation you've, scene you've, Oh, it's it's so good. And, and and granted, like I know that that's not how that works, but obviously they got to sort of like move it along dramatically in the in the movie. And you know, it's it's like three over the course of three nights uh, that you see, right? Um, 
that that you know he's sort of like staring at them as they talk to each other and at first like the first night he it's completely unintelligible and then the second night there's like little little snatches of conversation that will surface from the from the chaos into something that he understands and by the third night he actually understands when one of the guys is like insulting him <laughs> Um, and he stands up and and like and like owns him back, and everyone's like, "How did you learn our language?" And he has one of the greatest Antonio Banderas line reads of all time. Where he goes, "I listened," and he sounds probably <laughs> the least Arabic in the whole movie when he says that. Look, he sounds I, very Spanish. <laughs> he sounds very Spanish. When he does that. I I love that they didn't tell you that he's learning the language. Like the transition between them sounding completely different and bits of english coming out like it's subtle if you don't have the yeah. subtitles on you might not notice it while it's happening yeah yeah and they do like yeah they yeah i mean they, they do it's, the line it's done reads well where, enough. Where, like those yeah like like they they have neat sections where like the the norsemen will be talking in you know like half in like norwegian or swedish and and half in in english and they'll kind of just like drift back and forth and they they just like kind of edit it in a clever way. And yeah, it's, it's, it's very, very subtle. And it's very effectively done. Well, then they had, I believe that from right here, when they, they, they focus on like, maybe not from right this, but at the end of this entire scene where he, he gets asked by Buller uh, to, uh, can, can he, I love this, this phrase, can he draw sound? And he, he sort of like, instead of like being, uh, being waspish and sort of like, uh, you know, sort of like, oh, draw sound. What do you mean by that? Uh, he sort of like, you see him bite his tongue and he accepts it. And he's like, oh, and he writes in the sand. Also great, great little scene. Um, right before they, they then, uh, embark, right? <laughs> It's almost comical because I think that they they focus on one of the guys laughing and then it pulls back and they're he's laughing on a ship as it's sort of like oh, careening yeah. down. It's yes. so funny. It's like a comedic beat, right? Yeah, this, and this that, movie had a lot actually of those. Yeah, and and in the book there's a there's a a great little bit there that um where he talks about like, oh, they see sea monsters. And as the description keeps on going, you realize, oh, he's seeing whales for the yes. first time or something. Yeah, right? that was that was cool. Yeah, I, I do. I do like that because it, it does really sort like it. it um, I think they even make mention of it in the book where it's like, yeah, like those weirdo historians that they uh, they'll they'll have like these weird stories about like, oh, you know, like I guess like Herodotus is like, oh, the yeah, the the ants, they mine gold. And, <laughs> you know, and it's like, what? What are you talking about? That, that um, actually reminds me of a later part of the book, because like one of the things is, you know, it's got that scholarly uh, premise like that. It's the actual documents. And he's trying really hard to make it all realistic. Like the monsters are Neanderthals. The sea monsters are whales. But we get the dwarves. <laughs> mm, that's true. And like the, uh, that. Oh, I missed that in the movie. But like in the book, the dwarves are the one thing that you're not really sure about. Because the way Ibn Fadlan talks about them in the book, he talks about them as though they're real people with dwarfism. Like, oh, uh, in my mm -hmm. countries, they come from normal families. Uh, the kings sometimes hire them to do entertainment, stuff like that. And he's like, these are not those dwarves. These <laughs> these are women with beards 
they have giant hands. Uh, they live underground. These are not <laughs> people with dwarfism. Yeah, it's a real commitment to to trying to carry over everything from from the actual Beowulf tale and be like, well, can, can I come up with a realistic explanation for for everything in it? And you're right, this is definitely the one that that strains credulity uh, the most. There is a there is a comparable scene in the movie um, where, where they go and visit like the old wise woman who the lives like lady. apart from them. Yeah, I wish they'd kept well, the dwarfs the, though. <laughs> Yeah, that, that would have been pretty cool. But um, th- I also found the wise one to be like almost like a uh, a mirror to like the, the the old woman that they 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 call the angel mm-hmm. of death in the, the the one that pronounced like the thirteenth warrior needed to not be a Northman. But you know she's she's gone mad. <laughs> it's, it's it's such a such a funny thing. <laughs> it, it, it's brief aside, as we were watching this, I was watching this with my with my spouse, and <laughs> she turned around to me and said, "See, that's that's how I want to be, lying on the ground, giving <laughs> pronouncements." It's like, I, you know, I can't really argue with that. That's the that's the life. I gotta you, say, you've got a keeper, Carla. Yes, yes, indeed. Um, soon, we I will be uh, hollowing out a space on the uh, bare earth so that she can also lie down and make pronouncements all day long, as long as she likes. <laughs> I, I did really like the depiction of the the angel of death when when they are in the camp. It's very, it's like they, they don't they don't really show any part of her face. Like she doesn't, she's not made to look supernatural, but they do a good job of like just implying a lot. Like all you see is this kind of shape with like really old hands like shuffling along and then scrabbling around with bones. And it does give it this very uncanny quality that I, I, I think is probably one of the best examples of the movie conveying something that you're like, okay, I can imagine somebody having no context and seeing this and being like, this shit is magic. Like, I'm not sure if I should believe them or if I should believe my eyes and be like, no, this is fine. Which like the, the book kind of conveys with uh, the whales, like you were saying, although th- there is a funny footnote in the book, and I, I I disconnected for a second, so I apologize if this already came up. Where uh, the the academic is kind of like, I'm pretty sure Ahmadi Fadlam would have known what a whale is, and also the Vikings <laughs> would have known what a whale is. So it's not clear if this is like a, if they were playing a joke on him, or if this is a joke on the reader, or what's going on here because they probably would have known what a whale is. And I, it, it doesn't further anything about the plot. It's just it gives it that neat quality of like second guessing that a lot of academic literature has and it's very fun yeah yeah i mean it also adds to the uh to like the character of the of the the translator right that that fussiness that they have to step in and you know sort of clarify you know well actually we're pretty sure and and, and it's sort of like it's almost a little bit insufferable but also it it's great because it it sort of like intercedes at the right moment like I think we we talked about this in Jurassic Park, where you know Crichton, you know, like I gotta admit, like his pacing and the way that he is able to write, even this one, which I believe was what was this his first actual uh, published? No, album? it was his like uh, second or third. Um, it, it was his second or third under Michael Crichton. He actually wrote a bunch of like weird crime pulps hmm. under under a pseudonym in like the mid to late sixties. Hmm. This is this is one of his first ones that was published as michael Crichton. his 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 earliest novels are are all kind of like like sex and violence crime things um that are very disreputable (laughs) uh and then i think he wrote um this is his second novel after the great train robbery which is kind of has a similar conceit where he like he reconstructs 
like this story based on what he claims are like the court testimony. Um, but so, so he, he started out with as, as Crichton very much doing like a, like a found document, like quasi historical novel thing. And then kind of gradually transitioned away from it. But, but yeah, it's, it's very fun. And he really captures that, that pulp spirit. Like if you swapped it, like if you told me that this was a Robert E. Howard story, I, I would believe you. It really, like he really leans heavily into that, that sense of like the quasi supernatural, the quasi historical, and really gives it just this fun energy. Um, and it, it really, really works. There was, there was this part that reminded me so much of like a Conan story. It was, uh, it's in the part we're approaching. So they go like to meet the king, right? And they meet his son Wigliff. <laughs> we got to talk about Wigliff. Wigliff <laughs> in the in the movie he's good. In the book, oh my god. I was always excited to see Wigliff show up cuz he's so awful. <laughs> and there's a there's a scene in the movie where Bill Wolf uh like accuses him of killing his brothers, right? The book's version of that is so much better. I've got it highlighted. Yeah. I've got to read this if it's okay. Go for it. So they're they're in the hall. Wigliff is uh, getting ready to toast them. And Bullywolf stood and looked to Wigliff and said, I have no fear of anything, even the callow fiend that creeps at night to murder men in their sleep. This I took to refer to the Wendell, but Wigliff turned pale and gripped his chair in which he sat. Do you speak of me? Wigliff said in a trembling tongue. Bullywolf made this response. No, I do not. But I do not fear you any more than the monsters in the mist. So in the movie, he just accuses Wigliff, right? He's just like, I know you killed your brothers. In the book, Wigliff is such a sniveling coward. He's like, are you accusing me of murder? Yeah, it's it's there's a really great like plausible deniability to a lot of the like the Viking politics are one of the most fun aspects and they they do capture some of it in the movie. But yeah, like that scene in the movie still has a pretty good uh, banger of a put down where um, Wigliff, by by the way, I love the name Wigliff. It sounds it sounds very (laughs) um, what's the guy's name from uh, from uh, Lord of the Rings? Who who who? Grima uh, Wormtongue. Grima Wormtongue. Which which, which yes. actually, it's it it bears mentioning. Um, th- that that whole sequence is in part based on 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 Beowulf. That whole thing of like the party arriving at the isolated longhouse. That that's that's like Tolkien doing his own little Beowulf riff. I, I was I was actually going to compare at the end of the book. Right, we get a little scouring of the Shire yeah. moment uh, when they come back. And Wigliff makes a move. Yeah. He doesn't do it in the movie. Just like in the Lord of the Rings movie, they cut the scouring. But uh, Ibn Fadlan has to kill his buddy and Herger uh, kills our boy Wigliff. Yeah. And it's, it's fucking great. It's it's a it's a real like baller of a scene. Like, I wish that they had kept that. But um, oh. but yeah, in in the initial Wigliff confrontation, he's like, oh, you know, you must be careful, uh, Bulu, if you seem like a great king. But, uh, you know, that your 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 pride, you know, pride may cloud the uh, cloud the eyes of any men. And Bulu says something like, you know, I appreciate your advice, although I have heard nothing of your great deeds, save, of course, from killing your brothers, which, yeah, it's 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 a little bit less politic, yes. but um, oh, oh, I do want to say 
uh, the guy who plays Bulawiff, um, Vladimir Kulich, who incidentally is also uh, the voice actor for Ulfric Stormcloak from Skyrim, is so fucking good. Like he 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 could have oh. been like he deserves a much bigger career. Like he could have been like a '90s uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Like uh, he should have been in every single '90s fantasy movie because he's got that great that stoicness. Like especially in the scenes, for instance, where like. He shows that he watched what Eid Fadlan wrote and can write it back. He does this a great job of com- capturing that, like that, like strong, silent, but smart. That is like the heart of that, like Robert E. Howard type character. Actually, like that's that's basically what what this story is. It becomes a Conan story, except it's not told by Conan. It's told by a guy following along after Conan, being amazed at how much of a fucking asshole Conan is. <laughs> <laughs> you know you know while i was while i was watching it i was also playing lord of the rings online right hell yeah and uh i was in the zone for chill and the moment that we see the first windows for is straight up this movie that's awesome like the entire the entire plot of the zone of for is you are in long houses in a icy wasteland and there's a tribe of people who are ambiguously human who wear these bear and wolf pelts <laughs> and that's all you see them in. And everyone is complaining that you're this outsider. Like, Oh, you're, you're not a man. You don't know how to fight. Uh, why don't you go help them kill these Garadane? That's so fucking cool. Nice. Um, oh, there, the, b- before we get to the Island, <laughs> um, there is a really great scene in the book that they don't do in the movie where um, the Viking boats literally go right past uh, Ibn Fadlan's original destination. And he's like, oh, that's that's where I'm supposed to go. I'm supposed to go meet with like the king of that city right there. Can we can we stop for a moment? And the Vikings just like ignore him. They're like, huh? What are you saying? Sorry, I don't understand what you're saying. Gotta keep going. Um, and they just sail right past. And his frustration is so great because he's like, but this was this was supposed to be like a year-long trip right there. Can we please please? Please, it's got this great, this great, like dramatic irony of just going right past. But then they do stop at uh, Bulawif's hometown um, in the book, not in the movie, and find it basically destroyed by, by the Wendell. Um, and he, it's this very like stoic. Nobody shows any emotion. Nobody says anything. And Bulawif just goes in to a burning hut and emerges with Rundig, his giant fucking sword, uh, which is still hot from being buried in the ashes and you know you're meant to understand like his whole family is dead his father is dead his whole town is is destroyed but he's got his great sword and now he's gonna go fucking be you know awesome up north that's his uh that's his um what do you call it uh uh hero hero sacrifice you know that's his revenge plot well, yeah I mean, I mean it's it's very much in the book it's like well now like he he, he can't go back there's nothing to go back to. He mm-hmm. is now a man disconnected from everything. And it's like, this is where he begins, you know, journeying into myth, so, so, you know, so to speak in the book. And I, I know why they didn't do that in the movie. Cause it, it would have felt like, I, I kind of think it works better in the movie because you would have gotten a bunch more like character scenes with like the Vikings talking and just like English. And I, I, I think it is better that they minimize that. Um, but it is a cool scene in the book. And then we, yeah. So then Wiglaf happens. Uh, I do like the Viking who, who's um, 
when they land on, on the shore and they're like, someone's coming. And he goes, it's a, it's a rider. I smell silk and perfume. And someone goes, it's a woman. <laughs> yes. And he goes, no, it's a, it, it's a, it's a herald. <laughs> it's a herald. <laughs> it came straight from the court. <laughs> oh man. That, that is, that is a great one too. Yeah. And then they, um, and then basically begins, uh, their, their investigation into the nature of the Wendell slash like the first of a series of attacks um, where, which I think is like, is one of the best bits of filmmaking in the movie. Um, both like, so like the, in, in both, in both the movie and the book, they, they go down to this one isolated farm and just find people just ripped apart and eaten. Um, and there's just blood and guts strewn all over the place. And in both places they find uh, a Venus figurine. Um, which is, you know, they're, they're really trying to drive home this, like, it's, you know, it's, it's some version of, of ancient man. Um, and I really like the, the version that's in the movie because they got, they do this very nice, like tense buildup where you kind of expect that there might be like a battle right there. And it's just this sense of like, they're all around us. They're hiding. We can't pursue them. We, we are kind of at at their mercy basically. And it's a really nice, like tense scene. I like, I was going to ask you about that because I, one of the big changes was the order that occurs. Cause in the book, they find the farm on the way to talk to the King. Yes. So they find it first, which I thought was great at building tension while I was reading the book and I got to that part and they get to the farm and this is before they've gotten to the King and it's already destroyed. Like Ibn Fadlan's vomiting in both the book and the movie. Uh, it was a great like way to build up tension before the problem is literally spelled out. So, so I mean, I I think I understand it from both angles. Um, like in the in the book, you can do that because it's you've already sort of established the 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 tension. The main tension is that they're going to you know they're now in this new land. They're gonna you know find something's awry, right? And this is your first hint of it before they actually get you know sort of like told by the king you know that he, they should investigate this further. I think in the movie you have to sort of like you know sort of like script writing rules. You have to have some sort of um them be in control to a certain extent in the sense that they've been given a mission and now this is the first you know sort of like breadcrumb of you know their their first clue as to what they're up against i think it 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 can work either way but yeah i think it works for each medium if that makes sense yeah i i think that the cultural alienation of ifadlan plays a much bigger role in the book because you you don't really get much english dialogue from from the vikings you get a little bit from uh uh herger i think his his name is herger the joyful um but but most of it it feels much more isolated of like ifalan in his own head and so i think that the the like viking cultural sections feel a lot more tense in the book and so i think in general the, the movie starts to kind of diverge and become more of like an adventure narrative of like, well, we need to meet the king to establish the stakes. Then we get some detail and now we start seeing like the bad guy. Whereas like in the movie, it, it's it's leaning into that. Yeah, in the movie, it's leaning into like an adventure narrative. So I, I think it, it, it kind of would feel backwards to see the the aftermath of an attack and then go meet the king. Whereas in the book, it's it's kind of it's it's leaning much more into like horror because you have no exactly, clue what's yeah. going on. Yeah, 
it, it feels almost like the intro to like a gothic thing exactly, where you would yeah. go and you would see the ruined ruined village before you go to the castle to find out what the curse is. Yeah, and they, they also yeah, and to, to that to that point of like the gothicism of it, they they emphasize much more the the decrepitness and the vanity of King Rothgar, where where like they they arrive at this 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 huge you know, great house. And Amadi Vadan is like, surely it is the second wonder of the world. It's this amazing thing, all the more <laughs> for having been constructed with gold and silver far to the north. And the Vikings are like looking at it like uh, this fucking guy. And he goes, what's wrong? And they basically, like, they, they explain to him, like, it's not that it's not he's he's vain, but it's not that he's vain because he built this great house. It's because he built this great house and it's not protected. He's not strong. He has no strong warriors. He's daring the gods to be like, Come fuck me up, you know, basically. And that the reason he's being attacked is because he's he's laughed in the face of the gods. He's not been prudent. He's acting in a very unviking way. Um, and it's neat because because, yeah, in, in, in the novel, it does give it this kind of like gothic, like, you know, the arrogance of man, you know. Ozymandias coming in to fucking stomp on your shit, basically, uh, that that the movie doesn't really have so much like Rothgar is in the movie is presented much more as like he's he's shown to be kind of old and weak, but he's he's much more of like a positive character in uh, in the movie. Yeah, because in the movie, he even like at the end, they make a big deal of like, oh, he wants to fight with the men. Yes, exactly. right? He's not going to be a coward. And they have to, like, come up with an excuse to get him to go away. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but yeah, what, what, what I was going to say before I got way sidetracked was that the, the nighttime battle, um, is really well done. I think in the movie where it kind of like, it shows Antonio Banderas, like waking up in the middle of the night. And th- this again is straight from the book and he's looking around and you gradually see that all the Vikings are lying there with their eyes open, just holding their sword waiting <laughs> as oh, they're yeah, like, yeah. Oh, like that's why they're not drinking. It's because they're going to sit up all night. And as soon as they hear shit, they're going to let them come inside and then they're going to jump up and they're going to kick ass. Um, and they, they do a really good job of not really showing anything. It's almost like a, it's almost like a slasher villain sequence where it's just like arms and limbs and silhouettes flying around in the darkness. That that's Have the battle ever... where they pull off the head. Right? Yes. Or is that the no, second that's, battle? That's yeah, in this that... one. Yeah. Oh God. And then it shows up later. It's the Chekhov's yeah. <laughs> head. It's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, they actually show Have most either... of, the heads, um, of the people who died. Cause they, that's like the, that's like the big guy who I think was barking at his horse, but then they also show the guy who has the, the kind of like rune tattoo across the bridge of his nose um, later in uh, the, the Grendels. Um, sorry, Carla, what were you saying? No, I was just going to ask, has, has either one of you uh, ever read the 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 grendel like the the book grendel no yes. is that the one that, that that's like told like from her point of view from yeah from grendel's is point it a of punk view. book yeah um <laughs> no, uh, the grendel no, no. um uh, it, it is it is rather interesting because it is uh the, like you said kurt it the the way that that uh scene is played out um is is almost like a, a a like like Crichton is writing into that uh like he's answering that book in, in the sense that uh when Grendel finally uh he, he makes his way through the the hall just like chomping on uh random 
you know, random Vikings that are supposedly drunken and asleep. And, uh, and by the time he gets to Beowulf, Beowulf, he's like, what the fuck? This guy was like wide awake waiting for me. And then he's like, Jesus Christ, his arms are like iron. You know, it, you know, that's the moment where Grendel, you know, basically rips off his arm, uh, which is, uh, actually, I, th- I don't remember if it's in the movie right now, but in the book, they make a, they make mention of exactly that, like this idea that, um, they've, they've caught one of the, uh, what is it? The Vendel's, uh, arms. Yeah. The bear. And arm, that's where yeah. they, and that's where they realize that it's, it's a very oddly sort of shaped, um, yeah, like it's matted with fur everywhere except the palm. And then the arm itself is small, but wiry and it has huge hands. Yeah. Uh, it, it goes in. So it, it happens in both the movie and the book. It, it goes into more detail. Um, what, what, what the movie does, the, the, the movie makes a point of uh, pre- presumably for, for like, you know, effects budget constraints. Um, what, what they say is basically like, okay, they're Neanderthals, but, they're they just look like people but they believe themselves to be bears so they're kind of playing on that that like a berserker um idea mm-hmm. uh and and so in the movie it's shown as a human arm wearing a bear claw at the end kind of like as like a prosthesis almost um and in the book they say yeah that it's it's a very inhuman looking arm it almost gave me um like a uh, book of the new sun vibes where it's like it's like mm. it's like a man, but it looks different, and he's really struggling to describe. Yeah, he says like it's small and wiry, but it's very strong, and the hands are big, and it's got and it's covered over with matted fur, and it smells disgusting. Um, and more man apes. Yes, and and just like in Beowulf, they hang the arm from the ceiling, and like everybody, check out this fucking arm. What an arm! <laughs> <laughs> okay, whoa, 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 wait, 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 wait. That's the same way he describes the dwarves. It is. Yes, it is. Yes. It is. They they have hair all over. Even the women have beards. Uh, he specifically also mentions that they have big hands. Are the dwarves just the windles that are not in that tribe? Well, so hmm. I, I, I don't know how. I, I mean, it sounds like you all read the afterword, but um, one of the things that the book mentions in the afterword is that maybe Neanderthals never left us. Um, and that, you know, it, it, it is now believed this would have been kind of like on the bubble of research when this was written in 1975. But um, it is fairly well established, I think, now that humans and Neanderthals interbred to, to some degree. And they even make a point of saying in the afterward, if you took a Neanderthal and you bathed him and shaved him and cleaned him up and you put him on the subway, um, you would look at him and say, damn, that's a tough looking guy. But you wouldn't object to him marrying your sister. Um, which yeah. I don't know yeah. about that, but, uh, not, not having a sister, I certainly can't speak to that, but, um, I'm, I'm always trying to set up my sister. I'd be fine. <laughs> but <laughs> I, I think that's a really good point, Josh, because I think in the book, they are playing with that idea of like, are the quote unquote dwarves actually like a human subspecies or like an offshoot that still has more Neanderthal characteristics because in a very, proto jurassic parkway the book is very concerned with like you know we don't actually know very much about the fossil record and although we think these things are gone and part of history in actuality they are still with us like they 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 never left we are they and so perhaps it is kind of suggesting like yeah exactly what you said like maybe those are more straightforward neanderthal but maybe the dwarves in the book are um you know like people who have more pronounced uh 
Neanderthal traits or something. Cause yeah, they, 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 even the, the explanation of like, they live in caves. There's like steam all, all around them. Um, I think that's very astutely observed. So yeah, which the movie doesn't do anything with because again, <sighs> there's no dwarves. It's just like an old weird woman, um, who's lying, you know, in, in her hole. <laughs> it, it definitely, it, the old woman definitely does fit more with the, uh, the 80s style fantasy. It does. Yeah. She kind of feels like um, very much. Uh, it's it, it, it f- Willow. Yes. Well, what I was thinking was <laughs> it feels old, like in uh, Princess Bride, the uh, uh, the yes, mm. yes, like the crone that uh, shows up in her dream or whatever. Oh, I was thinking of the um, uh, the the aging machine. Yeah, lady. yeah, the miracle uh, people. I forget their name. Miracle yeah, Max's, miracle Max's wife. wife. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> come here, Bully Wolf. Come here. Yeah. Okay, he's, so, he's, but she's not a witch. Very, very important. So, speaking of how these guys looked, I have posted in the chat a picture of the Lord of the Rings Guaradon. Tell me, this is not a Wendell. Uh, that, yeah, that, that's yeah, a Wendell. I've seen a lot of Wendells I mean, in my minus, day. That's a Wendell. <laughs> <laughs> it was. Yeah. It, it's it's funny because like you first see them in a shadowy silhouette, right? And it looks like the silhouette you would see for a World of Warcraft character. Yeah. Like the, the complete, <laughs> complete bear head. Like, not like, oh, it's just armor that looks kind of like a bear. It's like the silhouette of a bear person in the shadow. So I know he probably is supposed to have a wolf on his belt, but it really looks like his cock is out. I have to say in that picture. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> You've ruined four shell for me. <laughs> no, no, no. It's it's just it's it's much more accurate now. <laughs> <laughs> so let's see what well, happens next. Gotta- um, I think next is is uh, the fire snake, isn't it? Yes, and that was so cool because they they play it up because it like you guys are saying it's like really heavily playing up on the Beowulf angle, and they're really going. There's this dragon. It's a single dragon. This one dragon is going to come. It's one monster. It's going to come from the hill. It's going to kill us. It is not one monster. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's basically like a cavalry charge where they're all carrying um, uh, torches. And actually, it's inter- this is like a very interesting, like practical shot that they seem to do in the movie. And this really this like touched my heart as like a fan of, you know, actually going to mountains and filming a, you know, a thousand extras. This looks like they just gave a thousand extras torches and we're like, here, just walk down a mountain in like a wiggly line. Um, and it looks, it looks cool as shit. Uh, I have to say like it, they, they do a good it's, job. All, all it looks of the really filming, impressive. All of the filming with the Wendell's, it, when they're on the horses looks amazing. Yeah. The, uh, the, the last scene in the movie where they're disappearing oh, into the fuck. mist, it, it reminded me there's this, uh, God, I, I don't remember. I think it's Algerian movie, Baba Z's. And uh, in the movie, this it's about this like Sufi guy who's taking his daughter to this, this gathering through the desert. And uh, he comes on this area where these jinn are living and the way they appear oh. and disappear is like that like oh, it's shit. not it's not supernatural right like there's no special effects these guys the windows they're not just like f- disappearing you see them and then in the mist they're just f- slowly fading not like a supernatural disappearance but it's just creepy it is amazing 
It is great, though. Well, I mean, again, I think it's it's to your earlier point, Kurt, where the the way that it's shot is uh, in a way that is um, that implies sort of like a naturalistic. Yeah, you know, it's not nothing. Nothing supernatural is happening, but it's shot in such a way that it seems very uncanny, if plausible. Right. So you you're supposed to be like look look at it and be unsettled mm-hmm. by it and I, I i think that one of the cool things about the the portrayal of the vikings in in both is that um they have this kind of resigned practicality where they're like all right we're gonna fight a dragon i'm scared shitless of the dragon but we're gonna fight the <laughs> dragon and then they're like oh it's just a thousand men with torches that's not really that much better but i guess i'm gonna fight that now instead like there's there's no like they don't make a big deal in either about when uh Ipfadlan comes back and is like, it's not, it's not a dragon. It's, it's like just a shitload of men. And they're like, oh, okay, yeah, that makes sense. You know, well, let's let's fight that instead. Um, and it it it, it really captures <laughs> in a nice way, I think the like this idea that b- both are basically unknown quantities. Like they don't they don't know any, any more about Neanderthals than they know about dragons. They're both equally bizarre, equally supernatural to them. And like I said, it's it's not really an improvement. It's like oh, a thousand men instead of a dragon. That's oh well, <laughs> I feel so relieved now. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean it, it is it is rather funny, but but yeah, like to your to your earlier point, it like that that scene where you see that like the the line of fire, uh, sort of like making its way down the mountain, really looks impressive. Yeah, you know? it looks very ominous too. You know, so obviously it's yeah, uh, working up the the ratcheting up the tension in the movie. Um, do I mean there there's what there's three major like big battle scenes yeah yeah so there's this, right? there's the battle of the longhouse yeah there, there's the battle with the fireworm uh the the book kind of splits it splits up a, a little bit where like they go down to f- to to raid their village and find it empty and and Ooh. then go down the cliffs whereas in, in the movie they go to the village um and the people are there and they kind of like f- f- fight their way in and then go out the cliffs um, but then the, both of them conclude with like the big battle, basically the, the book scene with the village was so unnerving. I loved it when they walk oh, that was into great. the yeah. hut, they, they walk into the hut and it crunches and they look down and what they thought was carpet is bones and teeth. Yeah. And brains. They're like, oh yeah, they yes. eat the brains. It's, and what I think is funny is, is the Vikings are like, well, it's, it's their ritual. It's, it's their way. Almost like non-judgmentally. Like, well, we can't judge them. I mean, you know, they're just, they're just doing the, you know, it's, it's the ways of their people. <laughs> <laughs> Look, we believed in dragons. Yeah. They, they believe in eating, you know, eating brains straight out of the brain pan. So you it, know. it does say they store all the skulls upside down as though it's a bowl. Yeah. So, I'm just imagining the Northmen Comfort. beginning each feast by like with like a land acknowledgement that they're on like unseated Neanderthal land, un- unseated Wendell oh. land. <laughs> <laughs> Odin, please smile upon us as we still continue to feast on unseated Wendell land. Um, yeah. Anyway, so uh, so yeah, like like uh, I did find that the the book has an interesting inversion. Um, like we were talking about, uh, it, it, it almost feels like it's a little, a little bit more, uh, 
I don't know. It would have been like really exciting to see that where they have to like actually lower themselves down into the yeah. cave to get to the Neanderthal cave air, uh, you know, system or whatever. Um, I don't know. I guess maybe like, like you said, it, it, it might be just budgetary constraints. So <laughs> they started with the, with the, uh, weird, uh, uh, suspended bridge village. Uh, and then they go into the caves. Uh, uh apparently there's, a uh, a sexy but evil uh, cave queen. Yes. Okay. Oh, yes. Okay. Oh, so, that, so yeah. So that's a big divergence. Yeah. <laughs> so Kurt, Kurt mentioned. I think Kurt mentioned this at the beginning of the episode, but apparently there's some troubled production here. And yes. at one point, Michael Crichton himself comes in to do likes to guide some reshoots. And one of the things he made them change was the Wendell Queen is not a Neanderthal looking person. She is like a cover model. Yeah, she's she's, slight, she's very beautiful. <laughs> she's like she, she's all slapped up with like mud and and blood and guts and stuff. But she's she's quite beautiful. Whereas in the book, they're like she's the grossest, shittiest, nastiest thing I've ever seen. She's huge. She's fa- <laughs> yeah. She's large. She looks like the statue, right? But like, and the way that she poisons him, it feels so Conan in the movie. Like she's got the really creepy long fingernail. Yep, and she just dips it into snake venom. Where's the snake venom coming from? These are bear guys. Yeah. And she stabs them with it. This is, she is, she is being a, was it Thulsa Doom? Yeah. She's the caveman yeah. Thulsa Doom. Well, she had, she had the one snake uh, coiled around her neck. I guess that's that one snake real because that bowl is full of venom. <laughs> that snake is very, very productive. So yeah, to, um, to elaborate upon the, the, um, the troubled conviction. Um, why, so uh, apparently, so so nominally, uh, the 13th Warrior was directed by uh, John McTiernan of uh, Die Hard fame and uh, Hunt for Red October and Thomas Crown Affair. He was, you know, this this legend like this movie was a big flop and it should by all rights have been a success. I'll say that even the end product should have been a success. I don't know what the fuck they were thinking in the 90s. This movie kicks ass. I guess it doesn't really feel like a 90s movie, so I kind of get it. But like. Looking backwards, it's it's a great movie. It's it, it feels like they made a 1987 movie with you know 1999 production values. I think I think it's a 99 movie. Um, John mm-hmm. McTiernan, uh, shortly after this was happening, shortly after this movie came out, he was um, I, actually I guess a few years later he was indicted on uh, illegal wiretapping charges related to the 2000 film Rollerball, <laughs> where uh, apparently John McTiernan. <laughs> descended into paranoia in the late nineties and became convinced that his producer and his agent were like, like double dealing behind his back. And so he had this army of like private investigators and private security, like going through everybody's trash and wire and like tapping people's phones. And, and it was like, and, and he wound up going to like a federal prison for like a couple of years, I, I, I think um, in like the late two thousands. Um, but, but basically uh, what it seems to have happened is that John McTiernan was so distracted by his like descent into paranoia during the production of the 13th warrior that Michael Creighton, a, a, a not unaccompanied, accomplished film director in his own right stepped in and was like all right um i'm taking over basically i'm going to direct the rest of this film and so it's not clear uh, apart from maybe some like stylistic hints like what was directed by whom uh but i'm going to give the credit to this for michael Crichton, especially the fact that it feels like an 80s movie because 
Um, reading the book, I think Michael Crichton was very in touch with that pulp tradition. He, if you look at the films that he directed, they're very 1980s. Um, he's got like a real grasp on that kind of like, like an upscale exploitation film. Um, and I'm going to say that Michael Crichton directed the final cut of this and deserves the credit. And I'm going to give it to him. Climate change opinions aside. Um, I think he kicked this movie's ass and he, he got it across the finish line. But yeah, at some point, John McTiernan was like, everyone's spying on me. I'm not going to direct this movie. I'm, I'm going to go do federal crimes. <laughs> <laughs> sounds like you had some sort of weird psychotic That's, break uh, or something. Man, yeah. That sounds horrible. Damn. Yeah. He, he was in, he well, was I in mean, jail yeah. for four months and he paid a hundred thousand dollars in uh fines ultimately. <laughs> Damn. Um, well, you know, uh, I think we'd mention, we've mentioned this at least twice before, I believe. I think Michael Crichton had also directed like that uh, movie that I've mentioned, Looker, Looker. which, uh, yeah, which uh, I, I was surprised by. I was like, wait, I thought he was just like a writer. No, he, he directed like 10 or 12 <laughs> films, actually. Mostly yeah, in well, the 70s. And, uh, Westworld no. as well? Or, or was he just in the script? No, he directed Westworld. I forget. Yeah. Hmm. Oh. It, yeah, it just, uh, Crichton was like a like a triple threat. <laughs> yeah, he he actually started. Um, he it's it's funny looking at his picture. He looks so much like uh, Stephen Colbert, like like a giant St- Stephen Colbert. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so so what what happened was um, he he basically un- found initial success, I believe, like writing novels basically as film treatments, and then. Um, effectively like directing the own like the adaptations of of his own uh films um so he directed he directed a film called uh so so he did westworld he did a film called coma he did an adaptation of his novel the great train robbery he did looker he did like a robot hunting movie with um what the fuck is that guy's name i always think it's sean connery was that the tom selleck the the tom selleck he he did runaway he did like a crime film runaway physical evidence um wait wait he created er yes he created er He's he's what's a big fucking deal. Yeah. He really uh he did he he did not need to keep working. He could have retired in like 1985 at some point. <laughs> yeah, it's it's wild. But yeah, it it's basically after physical evidence in in 89 was the last film that he directed um until his 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 uncredited work on this. So it seems like he was very much an 80s director and then kind of, you know, just basically just started doing adaptations in, in the nineties. Uh, Cause he did rising sun, he did D- disclosure twister. Um, he was a producer or writer on, on all of those. And then finally he got back behind the camera for this. Oh, total non sequitur. We have to talk about the duel um, between. Oh, uh, oh yeah. You mean Herger and the, Ragnar. Crash, crash, crash. <laughs> it's so fucking cool. So um, at some point between these conflicts, it becomes clear that the dastardly Wiglyph is whispering in the king's ear and has convinced him that uh, Bulawif is there to steal the throne. Um, and so uh, Ibn Fadlan finds out about this and goes and tells Herger and Bulawif. And he's like, look, they're conspiring against you. And they, what basically what, what Herger does is he goes and digs shittily next to Wiglyph's giant friend and picks a fight with him by throwing mud on him 
and then misinterpreting his words on purpose to be like, oh, you say you say I'm a liar. You say I'm a dog. And he goes, no, no, I said you dig like a dog. Oh, so so now I sp- you know, n- now I'm a liar. Well, you speak like an old woman twisted and tricky or something. Um, I was shocked how close to the book version of that that was. Word for word. The only thing that's missing yes. is the funniest line in the movie, in my opinion, where Ibn comes up to him and goes, what happened? And Herger goes, an engineering dispute. This <laughs> 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 is a great line. It's such a great line. <laughs> it really is an engineering dispute. And, and, and then there's, uh, there's bit, this amazing duel um, but between them, which again, verbatim between the book and movie where they each get three shields. They get like one strike each and you either block the blow or your shield breaks, or et cetera. And Herger intentionally gets down to no shields left and then just rolls aside and fucking chops off Ragnar's head and is like, take care of your friend. He was a brave man. Just be like, look, we could we could fuck you up anytime we wanted. You have no idea how strong or weak we are. We are smarter than you. We're stronger than you. Fuck you, Wigliff. Get fucked. <laughs> and in the movie, he never comes back. We don't see Wigliff like do right. anything again, really. Yeah. That's the end of our boy Wigliff. Which is a shame because as as we said, it's oh, such a good uh, yeah. scene. But um, but then they go and they do the Thundercliffs in their, their various forms, which I thought this was a terrific sequence in the movie. I, I thought the sequence in the movie was uh, in a lot of ways better done than the book. It kind of turns into like the descent f- for a little while and you can just yes. really cave scenes. Or like it almost feels like uh, one of those modern military movies where they're infiltrating to assassinate someone in their own home, right? Yeah, yeah. they're sneaking. They have to be like, oh, if we're too noisy, we'll alert the guards. They'll come after us. Most yeah, of them yeah. are wearing it- black. Yeah. Yeah, honestly, yeah, Kurt, you you, you nailed it. Because as soon as like they were they were like uh, sort of like crawling through that little ditch, and, and overhead is like uh, a little group of um, of the you know of the Wendells or whatever, um, where they pause and is like, hey, did you hear something? You know, like in in a position of you know, did you hear something? Uh, it, it it totally gave me like descent vibes. Yeah. It's like yes, give me give me little cave goblins that will k- kill your shit. And they um, it's it's much longer in the movie th- than in the book because they they take some of the scene with like the the climbing down ropes in the book and and they move it inside the cave in in the movie. Where mm-hmm. and yeah. actually, there's a really nice line um from uh, I forget if it's Ib Fadlan commenting or if it's Herger talking, but he says like um. Oh, like, you know, uh, Ifadlan basically says, like, I'm terrified of heights. I was terrified of heights in Baghdad. I'm, ter- I'm even more terrified of heights here. Um, and, and Herger goes, like, I envy you because it will, for you, it will be even more glorious because you are going to overcome your singular fear. And then goes on to say, like, <laughs> each man in life is given a particular fear and each of us mock other man's fears you know one man might be fear of heights one man might be afraid of water one man might be afraid of you know small spaces um and and the the fact that each of us can overcome these fears and the fact that you know another man's fears may seem ridiculous to us means that bravery is merely a preference as of our preference for wine or ale or a preference for one woman over another um and it's this really nice like beautiful little like poetic sequence uh 
in the book that mm. I, I think there goes a lot. There's a there's an undercover. There's an uh, an undercurrent in the book that I think isn't present in the movie, where they kind of gradually suggest that the the Vikings kind of have this like again very Conan esque like backcountry philosopher quality to them where they have all these aphorisms and wise sayings where it's like in a way they understand their world just as well as you know someone that we would consider more civilized understands their more civilized world and i i think it's really well done um in in the book i i like the ending of the thunder cave in the book it got a laugh out of me because in the movie you know they're they still have to struggle to get out like they alert the guards they kill the queen and then they have to find a way out uh, through the water in the book. He just goes, Oh yeah. And then we left. Yeah. <laughs> they, they were all scared. So, so they ran away. Yeah. Yeah. We just walked out. Uh, it was nice. <laughs> <laughs> so um, uh, given that we're approaching like the hour and a half mark, uh, should we, uh, is there anything else that we should probably talk about before we start wrapping up? Uh, I just want to mention, I think the the two coolest scenes in the movie one, and this is more explicit in the movie, but it's present in both where Beowulf or uh, Bulliwif, pardon is, uh, is concerned about leaving no legacy. And he says, you know, I, I have no slaves. I have no arms. My home is gone. Like what is left for me? And uh, King, King Hrothgar in both cases is like, you will be accorded the honor of a king's burial. Um, and then Bulawif like basically looks at Ifalan and goes, um, it's it's more explicit in the movie. He says, like, you know, a, a man would be uh considered wealthy if he were to have the tales of his deeds written down as, you know, it, like the basically like if you were to write my story, um, that that mm-hmm. would be, you know, riches enough. And Ibn basically says, like, you know, yes, I will I will do this thing. Um and it's it's a, just a nice oh, little look. kind of like nod between the two men. It's it, but but he believes in the power of stories. Yeah. It's very <laughs> it's Neil Gaiman. He goes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be very wealthy. Um but but um, then there is the coolest sequence in the whole movie uh, slash book where Bulawif gets up, he's poisoned, he's dying, and he comes out to fight one last time. And it's this fucking epic, you know, Conan final confrontation where he's all shitty and dying and he's dragging his giant sword behind him and he walks up and stands on the ramparts with the rest of his men and goes down fighting and it kicks ass. Um, and the yeah. way the way he dies looks so much like all the King Conan yes, covers, right? Yes. Where he's slumped oh, yeah, on yeah, the yeah. throne, slumped on the throne. Yeah, it's so yeah. good. Uh, well, and and let's not forget uh, Kurt because th- this this was rather um, moving. And I, I know I know Josh that uh, you know this this actually happens right after uh, Ibn, Ibn Fadlan does his prayer. He you know he does his oh, final, we, you know, like, we got to talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> go go for it, go for it. Yeah, because um, honestly, uh, I, I'm I'm very curious to find uh, to see what what you have to say about it. <laughs> oh, there's okay. Okay, so like a prayer in in movies, the the prayer is very formulaic. Like it's the same steps every time. Basically, the only thing that really changes is like which surah you're reciting. So like which chapter of the Quran you're reciting, and it's really simple. Like you can Google it and get the list of steps. No one ever does. No one ever does. It's always like they know that people bow down and face a direction, and then it's just weird. 
The one show that got this right. Have you watched Midnight Mass? I have not. Okay, so Midnight Mass has the sheriff character who's like this Muslim stuck in this like New England Lovecraft town, right? Mm-hmm. And when he's dying, he actually does the prayer and like Rahul Kohli plays him and he actually knows like the steps. So he dies in the part of the prayer where he's like uh, putting his forehead on the ground. And in Islam, this is considered like the best way to die. Right. So like if you die in that part of the prayer, uh, it's almost like as good as being a martyr. And so in that scene, keep in mind, it's like a schlocky vampire horror series. Right. And Mm -hmm. in that scene, he dies in Sajud and like all the people with me just jump up cheering at this. And here's this movie, Antonio Banderas, he gets down, he bows down, he comes back up, and he's like, yo, God, please be nice to me, I guess. <laughs> oh, my God. It was... Yeah, well, he, he says something along, like, uh, along the lines of, like, grant me only that I uh, live well, uh, it, it, you know, or something to that effect in the next few minutes or something to that, uh, yeah, like, like right before the battle, he I think is what he says. St- he skips all the steps. He doesn't even do the hands, man. <laughs> I was like, while, while, while I was watching this, I'm, I'm noting down this stuff because I'm a pedant and, uh, or pedant, whatever. And I immediately, there's that cool scene in the movie. I know you guys think it's cool because you were posting gifts of it where they all recite the prayer before the last battle with the Windows, <laughs> right? Uh, we mm-hmm. will go to Valhalla. And I'm sitting there, I'm like, this dude's committing shirk. <laughs> Saying you're going to Valhalla is is the sin of shirk. Ibn Fadlan, what are you doing? Canceled. Canceled. Uh, oh yeah. Of course, in by this time in the book, he already in the book, he goes from like, oh, this beer, I would never drink it. It tastes horrible. You know, of course he drank it because he complains about how it tastes. He, by the end of the book, he's sleeping with all the women. He is doing all this. Uh, Ibn Fadlan, man, what are you doing? This is... <laughs> This is they're, sad. Though. They're roasting you but in the quote will, tweets, my, in the quote tweets, my dude. I, I will, I will say, I've told Kurt about this though. I feel like the Muslims got revenge on him in 2016. Why is that? So, <laughs> how so? so? Uh, okay, uh, during Ramadan, there's like a tradition of these Ramadan shows. So, like they have a lot of soap operas and stuff uh, here in the Gulf. And one of the shows that has been around for a while is called like Ramez plays with fire. Oh, you did tell me about this. Oh yes. This is great. (laughs) Yes. It is an, it's an Egyptian prank show. Uh, so they, he basically is this Egyptian guy and he pulls like pranks on Western celebrities, but not like a Western prank show would. They're really sadistic. So (laughs) he, the guy who runs it, Ramez, he's gotten beat up multiple times, uh, for doing this. And he brings in Antonio Banderas to a hotel in Egypt and they fake a hotel fire. And this was the same year, I believe, when two hotels in the Gulf had caught fire and like burned down and killed a bunch of people. So they pump smoke in from the bottom floors, convince him that the building's on fire and that the only way for him to get off is a helicopter rescue. Make him go up all the stairs to the roof have special effects. The fire, like it's super realistic. He gets to the roof, the helicopter lands. And then the host is like, Oh, you've been pranked. And then Antonio Banderas decks him. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm I'm watching this during Ramadan holiest month. And I'm like, this is the best thing I've seen on TV all month. 
It was the only other star they did this to that like worked up the courage to punch him was uh, Shah Rukh Khan, the Bollywood guy. Mm. But I, I feel like whatever whatever drama Antonio Banderas gets for playing a Muslim badly in this movie, he is more than made up for it uh, with that. <laughs> did, did he did he end with like, why did you punch me? I listened to you. <laughs> <laughs> that's great um i will say if yeah, you I if, mean, if, if, if you do, if you do ever want to like see a movie that is incredibly western but has like an interesting and nuanced take on on muslim stuff weirdly enough the curse of sleeping beauty 2016 interesting I'm curious. So interesting. I, I saw that. I've mentioned to you guys, I, I think occasionally that like movies get censored here a lot. Right. But Bahrain is one of the more liberal countries. So they don't like usually cut the whole movie. They just cut like whatever part they don't like. So my wife and I saw this curse of sleeping beauty in theaters. 20 minutes of the movie is missing. This is like <laughs> insane. And it, we saw the witch and that had like five minutes cut. Uh, we see this movie, it's 20 minutes cut, we have no clue what's going on. So I go home and I, I rent it and I watch it. And it turns out what happens is, the twist is that like, they're pretty sure this demon is in a haunted house. And he's bringing this guy in and he's like, trying to kill him the deeper he goes in the house. And eventually they they find a bunch of Arabic stuff in the house and they go to this imam and they ask him like, okay, what's the deal? Uh, we think this is a jinn. And the imam is like, look, uh, Jin, he explains the traditional Islamic view of Jin. He's like, oh, they're just like us. Uh, they have different opinions. Jin can be Muslim. They're not always like really scary stuff. Uh, you should read the Quran to, to see if it's Muslim or not. And the twist is uh, the Jin is Muslim and it's not trying to kill them. It's trying to scare them from being in the house because there is a demon in the house. <laughs> uh, but th- what they thought was the demon is actually a nice, pious Muslim Jin. And uh, he gets there and reads the Quran and the jinn has to leave and then the demon kills him. Uh, It's a very, very fun (laughs) twist. Did not show up in theaters because they were like, it's not not appropriate to uh, explain the Quran in a fictional horror movie. (laughs) Interesting. All right. So um, I guess uh, last thoughts. Uh, Do we have any last thoughts? Definitely read the book. If if you are interested in like the faux academic and like pulp horror, almost pulp gothic caveman related horror, definitely read the book. It's short. You can read it in a day. Yeah. The the audiobook is only about four, like four and a half hours or five hours long too. Like it's not it's not yeah. long. Um I listened to this as an audiobook and it's basically like listening to like a history podcast. Because it's got um, <laughs> the narrator does like a really good job of using one like one tone of voice for the narr- for the for the manuscript, and then I'll stop and like say an aside, and it's very clear when he's like, "Oh, here, here's the historical aside." So it's it's got a really nice. Yeah, he's he's it. got a, he's got a really yeah he's got a great great uh, narrator yes. voice. Uh, so so they he actually says the footnotes, all of the footnotes in the audio, all of them. Yes. Oh, that mm-hmm. rocks! Because in the book, they're like footnotes, right? They're just the yes, and see, see, bibliography sixteen. This is probably something that is worse as an ebook because ebooks typically make you click through, whereas in a printed book, you know, th- this 
the version that I had of this as a printed book, the, the footnotes were at the bottom of the page. And sometimes they would take up three quarters of the page and you'd have like one paragraph of the text at the top. Um, and so I think it's much easier to skip over the footnotes in the ebook and just not be like, well, I'm not going to click on that. And it's, you know, that you're skipping so much shit in the physical book. And it's good. And it's really good. It's, it's like, good it's like a stuff. whole se- secondary narrative. Um, so yeah, I, I would say do not deprive yourself of, of that. Um, I would say either read it in, in hard copy so you don't need to like flip back and forth or just listen to the ebook because it's real. It's, it's, it's good. And it, it almost makes me envision like an alternate universe where Michael Crichton just kept writing, you know, straight for, you know, like, like a historical action pulp. And I would be happy with that. You know what? Yeah. I, I might even s- sacrifice <laughs> Jurassic Park for 12 more novels like this. <laughs> I would. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Well, that, that's a hell of a way to end uh, Die November, uh, Kurt. Yeah. <laughs> uh, fuck Jurassic, fuck Jurassic Park, Park take honestly. 12 more of these. Uh, well, Jurassic <laughs> World, for sure. Uh, yeah. Anyway, um, I mean, uh, and also uh, watch watch the movie. Yeah. Uh, it, it is not exactly uh, the most accurate, but fuck it. It's it's a lot of fun. And it's it a classic. Really matter. Yeah. Yeah, it's a classic. Uh, and, yes. and I was also mentioned, like, I think I was mentioning uh, to, to someone else that this is like peak Banderas. Like, this is <laughs> like one of the moments where where Banderas was at his uh, at his height in in Hollywood uh, after having made his uh, made, you know, like basically uh, gotten into uh, films and whatnot in Spain. So, uh <laughs> I still love it. I listened. <laughs> so, uh, Josh, thanks. Thank you so much for, uh, you know, deciding to come on and, and talk, talk a little bit about, uh, the 13th warrior and eaters of the dead with us. Um, hopefully we can have you back for some other uh, occasion, but, uh, you know, but only if you want to. I appreciate the invitation, guys. This was so much fun. Yeah, this is a blast. Thanks for coming on, Josh. This is, this is terrific. So where, where can we learn more about Islam? All right. <laughs> oh, the, the Quran, the Hadith, uh, the Sunnah. <laughs> we, we have to. We, Amazing. Uh, there's what was it? Oh, God. There was uh, when I was the, when I was first learning about Islam, I was reading this like. Thula Gulen, and it was the most white bread stuff. It was like he has a magazine, and it's like Oprah Islam. And then <laughs> I had to worry about if I could visit Turkey because it turns out he's in exile in Pennsylvania, right? He's the guy that, uh, oh, that, oh, that wow. Q- he's the QAnon general guy that he was gonna sell him to Turkey. Uh, what's his name? Flynn. He was the guy that Flynn was going to like capture in a bounty hunter Boba Fett style and sell to Turkey. <laughs> and I was like, oh man, I used to read his magazine. It was extremely boring homeschool moms writing about like bread. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> oh, wow. All right. Well, you guys well, have a good anyway. night. <laughs> yeah, same. All right. Well, thanks to everyone out there for listening and we'll catch you next time here on Podside.